Uh, the first thing I want to talk about today is the closing of the door of our heart. We're going to talk about intimacy and why we wind up uh, very closed people and uh, not, not secure enough to let people really see who we are. The second thing we're going to look at in a little bit will be fighting the good fight for our mind. And the third thing this afternoon is going to be standing and seeing the salvation of our God. And like I said, these will fit together, although they don't sound like it uh, as I read them. Let's start with prayer. Father, we thank you so much uh, that your spirit has brought us together this morning. And it is your desire to meet with us, to commune with us, to love us. And Lord, we pray that we would be vessels that would stand before you today, ready for you to take away those things that you would take away mm -hmm. and to impart those things of beauty that you would give us. Amen. So we look to you and Father, I pray that you would use the words of my mouth, uh, that Lord, you would be glorified in all that I say this day. And we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. I want to begin with a reading from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Before time was, before the universes were set in place, and before the sun and the moon and the stars were hung in the sky, before the water and the dust of the earth were spoken into being, before man was created and woman from man, God lived and continues to live in community, a community of three persons. It has always been, it will always be, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together. There has always been a sharing, each displaying and working an individual part of a whole. There's friendship, there's relationship, there's communication, there's communion in this community. And in creation, let us. Let us make man in our image. And it wasn't good. Because it was not good for man to be alone. Because alone was not even an imaginable thing in the heart of the community from which man received his breath of life. God could not even imagine that he'd make this beautiful creation and leave him alone. The aim and the goal of the enemy of our soul is to isolate us and to cause us to be independent and self-sufficient. I will, I can, I work, I achieve. That was his offer, that was Satan's offer to Adam and Eve. You will be like God. What a lie that is. That is total 
total lie. God was never alone. He was never independent, and, or he was never self-sufficient. The Father depended on the Son, and uh, Jesus always looked to the Father, and the Holy Spirit always did the bidding of God and Jesus. All depended on the other, none working independently of the other. And in this fellowship, in this community, was found intimacy. They knew one another. They loved one another. And this intimacy was found unity. There was a unity. They, they were together in this. And where that unity was, there was power. If we truly desire to see God work in our midst in this world today, it's going to work the same way. It's going to take community, being intimate with one another, knowing one another, loving one another, coming to a place of loving and being united even in some of our differences so that the power of God can be released on this earth today. So I'm going to repeat that. In this fellowship, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was found love and intimacy, and in the love and intimacy was found unity, and in the unity was found power. Our entire life journey is one from isolation within our own broken, sinful heart to eternity. And when I speak of eternity, I'm not talking about a place so much as I'm talking about the community that we will be part of. We will belong to something so much greater than we are. And our lonely hearts find home. That's what our hearts long for, is home. And you know, on this earth, we're going to be pilgrims and strangers because home is with God. And uh, that it's a great journey that we're on. We need one another. It's in our heavenly DNA. Why do we strive so for friends and connection and community? You know, it, it, it drives us, even in wrong directions, if, if it's not done in a healthy way. Because it's our DNA. We were never meant to be alone. We were meant to be in this, in a place where we are with other people. So our journey in the battle begins as we take our first breath, really, I want to look just briefly at the brokenness that really happened in Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis 3, 14 and 16. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And we see here that even in the beginning, there was the break between man and God, as Adam and Eve sinned, 
and they tried to hide from God. That's our first clue of the closed heart and what happens to us is we try to hide from God and then, then it says that, that there's going to be this strife between men and women. And then we go on just a little further and Adam and Eve have their, their sons and we see that Cain and Abel, there's strife and there's brokenness. And see, that's part of Satan's plan to break up the community, to break up the family so there won't be the intimacy, so there won't be the unity. Why? Because he fears the power. He fears the power of human beings who are united in heart and mind and soul in loving God. So he has done everything from the beginning of our beginning to bring strife between men and women brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors. It's just part of our human condition. When I look at the word intimacy, it means most private, personal, familiar, resulting from careful study and examination. We learn very, very early in life that it's dangerous to let people see what's in here. To let people see the most personal and private things about us. You know, I think as a child, we're, when we're little, we're so innocent, you just think the whole world loves you, don't you? You know, these little ones like Clara and Emma and the little ones running around, they, they, they have this innocence in them that they don't know yet that when they begin to do this and reveal the things about them that they don't understand and yet they're, they, they have to deal with, that they're not going to be completely loved by people. You know, little girls and little boys too make friends and they become real friends, you know. They, they're together all the time. They're doing things they love. They play together. They... And then one of them will do something, and the other will stand back and examine it. Remember what intimacy is? And they will study that, and they'll think, hmm, that's not right. And all of a sudden, there begins to be a little rift in, in that friendship, and... Of course, the other one feels the tension, and all of a sudden they're going, hmm, I don't think they like me anymore. And so the next time you go into a friendship, you're not quite so quick to let people see what's in here because your experience has told you that people don't always understand who you are. And like I said, you throw in here that most of the time you don't really understand it either. It's things you're wrestling with that you, you really don't have a clue why you feel like that or why you do that or why you said that. So we learn really early in life that we have to be guarded in our relationships and we have to be guarded with certain people and we have to be guarded in certain situations because 
you're going to be judged. And what begins to happen is we begin to feel shameful. Shame comes really early for children. And we carry it very deeply in our being. Uh, we become threatened by one another. Uh, and then you move into a courting relationship. And ideally, a courting relationship is where you truly let the person know who you are. But how many times does that happen? Not very often. I mean, most of the time you are on your best behavior because you want this guy or this gal. So you, you, you stay in the lines, pretty much, until the I do's are said, and you go home, and the socks are on the floor, and the orange juice is left out, and sometimes you're not told the truth, and sometimes money's spent in ways that you don't want, and you think, who have I married? Because the intimacy of really getting to know one another and all of your faults and all of your, the places where you fall short, you've kept them pretty well hidden. Now, I believe that that is the opportunity for Christian couples to bear down, be able to be who they are, be open to talk about it, and to be able to press through. But I honestly think that's the place where marriages explode because they don't want to be with that person that's not what, exactly what they wanted, not exactly perfect. And you know what? If there's one perfect person in this room, I'd like for them to stand up. I'll sit down. <laughs> be, because we're, we're just not. We, we are flawed, broken human beings. And then you even take that into business partnerships. You know, you go in into this fellowship and you really like one another and everything is going really great until some of these things begin to be revealed about this person that you're with. And you stand back and what does intimacy say? Intimacy says, I examine that. Hmm, I don't think I quite like what I'm seeing here. Or, or you uh, study it. And the minute we begin to do that, we begin to put these walls up that that other person feels. And the intimacy is cracked. Businesses fall apart. Marriages fall apart. Friendships fall apart. All because of this midpoint where the growth happens where we begin to know one another and we begin to know ourselves, and we can have honest conversations of, I don't know why I do that. Help me figure that out. Don't shame me. Don't condemn me. Don't discard me. Help me. But you know what that takes? That takes humility. And it also takes a level of knowing that you are loved. Because if there's any doubt in your mind that this person really loves you, you are going to operate out of fear, you're going to operate out of hiding, and you're going to operate in deception because that's just the way we do it as human beings. Just like Adam and Eve hid from God, 
took the leaves and covered themselves. They tried to hide because they feared what their loving Heavenly Father, how he was going to react to what they had done. And that's the same way that we do. Uh, it leads to kind of living in a darkness, fear of being found out, fear of being foolish. And at the same time, there's usually someone across from us that's feeling those same things. But we become so self-centered on what we're doing, what we're trying to hide, that we fail to really recognize that, what did I say? We are in this together. Whether it's a friendship, whether it's a business partnership, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a community like this, we are in this together. And there are going to be difficulties that come. There are going to be things that uh, are said or done out of our brokenness that can destroy if we let it. But if we press in knowing how much God loves us and how much he wants us to live in the light, Satan loves it when we live in the darkness. He loves it when we hide and are isolated. I want to read 1 John, the first chapter to you. What was from the beginning, and we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that your joy may be made complete. And this is the message we'd heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie, we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. See, it's walking in the light, not the darkness, not hiding, but being real. And he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, it's in place of intimacy where sin is revealed. And that is a glorious thing, because that means we can be healed, we can be cleansed, we can be set free. It can be taken from us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, how do we know we have authentic fellowship and friendship? By coming to the light. By being humble enough to confess our shortcomings and our sins and by having those around us really assure us that we've been forgiven and cleansed and that we are not going to be outcast. So this morning we're going to talk about uh, looking at those places where we've shut the door to our true being. Are we willing to risk being and showing who we truly are? 
broken and glory altogether? Or are there still places you feel like you need to hide? Are you re really fearful that if they really know me, they would not really like me? And they would reject me and be filled with shame? You know, I had hidden so long that I really had no idea, no idea of who I was. I'm going to read to you just a little bit here. My uh, kids love it when I read to them. And this is one of my favorite, favorite stories in all of my book. And you'll understand why I'm reading it when it's finished. We had moved around a lot. I was born in the hills of Appalachia, Kentucky. And we moved to Cincinnati. But Cincinnati was a temporary thing. Dad was transferred to Columbus, Ohio, and we headed further north. But this time we landed in a permanent position, one that he retired from 25 years later. By this time, I had been to five different schools, none of them long enough to make friends or settle into learning. Different methods of teaching were used by different school systems, and I couldn't figure out what anybody wanted from me, and I had knew even less how to give it to them. In the end, I learned to read by sight, but I never really learned to read phonics. To this day, I can't really spell very well, and I still don't know my times tables, and I have really tried to learn those. And yet, even at a tender age, I have a dim understanding that I was not living like the little girl that I want, desperately wanted to be. I was about eight years old when this happened. The fertile ground of my heart was filled with fear, loneliness, and a sense of failure. With those uh, emotions, with my intense striving to be accepted, my sin nature, which had shown its head when I was three years old, became stronger and stronger every day. Lying, stealing, and hiding became a way that I survived. I tried to make friends, but had little success. I talked with a real country slang. Uh, slang uh, lost my place here. I had long braided hair. My dresses were made out of corn sa uh, flower sacks. I was really different, in other words, and it seemed as though I were the one to be avoided at all costs. <laughs> Wasn't popular at all. Some of the girls were brownies, and I really wanted to be a brownie because I thought they all wear these little dresses and they have the beanies, and I know that if I can become a brownie, everybody will like me. So I, hook and crook, I managed to get into the brownies, and everything was going just fine, and I thought, well, I finally found a place where people are going to like me. And toward the end of the year, everybody was excited because we were going to go on a camping trip. Daddy dropped me off that day, kissing me on the cheek before I headed up the hill. The excitement of spending the time with three girls from my class transformed the day into an extended Christmas Eve. As I reached the top of the little hill, I found my tent number and headed toward it. I pulled back the canvas slap, stood there with the biggest smile on my face you could possibly imagine, in that first hopeful glance, I understood. I knew that that little circle had no room for me. I unpacked my bag, laid my pillow on the cot, and sat down. Immediately, the three girls bolted out of the tent, leaving me sitting alone. I still remember how they looked as they uh, watched them go down the hill, laughing without me. 
When we returned from our activities that night, I lay back down on my cot and pretended to go to sleep. It was easier than being left out. When they thought I was asleep, I became the center of their conversation. She's so weird. I don't know why they had to put her in our tent. Yeah, they could have put Sue in our tent. She would have been a lot of fun. Like a scalpel wielded by a malignant doctor, every word cut deep into my heart. They were describing exactly how I felt about myself. They were using my own words. Shortly after that, when the light was turned out, I got really sick. They had to call my dad. He came and got me. Several weeks later, I noticed that one of the girls had left her little purse in the cloakroom. I quickly reached in and removed the little change purse, slipped it into my pocket. I didn't really want the purse, but it was a way to hurt her, the way she had hurt me. On the way home from school, I tossed the change purse into the weeds, but only after I had removed the shiny pennies and put them in my pocket. Now, don't ask me if this next story was in direct response to that camping trip. I don't remember, but I was living in such pain that I honestly don't, couldn't tell you. I wanted friends so desperately I would do anything. One of my classmates had a birthday party and invited all the girls in the class except me. Uh, when I heard them talking about the party, all the fun that they had had, ice cream and cake and games and prizes, I began to think about how it would feel if I had a birthday party. The only problem was my birthday wasn't for quite a few months. I began to daydream, and before I knew it, I had taken several sheets of paper, drawn pretty pictures on the front, and detailed all the information about my party. It would be a week from Saturday, 11 o'clock in the morning, and we would have cake and ice cream too, and we would play games. I printed the name of several girls on the front of the paper and without thinking, handed them out at the close of the day. As soon as I realized what I had done, I panicked. But I can quickly confront, uh, comforted myself with the notion that I would tell mom and we could have a party and it would be okay. I went home that evening thinking I would talk to her the minute I got in the house. But the baby was crying and she was yelling and even at eight years of age, I knew it was not the right time to talk to her about my lapse in judgment. I decided to tell her tomorrow. There'd be plenty of time. One day rolled into two and then into three. But there never seemed to be a good time to talk to mother. What in the world was I gonna do? I went to bed Friday night feeling sick at my stomach. I tossed and turned all night in bed, totally unable to sleep. Why had I been so stupid? See here, I just kept doing stupid and dumb things. Did I actually think Saturday wasn't gonna come? It did come, it was a beautiful day, but I felt I would jump out of my skin if anybody spoke to me. How could I stop the clock? How could I stop events that were already in motion? It seemed the only way was just disappear, but I was too frightened to run away. After breakfast, Mother and I began to clean the house. She had on an old house dress. I had on dirty clothes. My hair not yet washed and braided was, was a Saturday job. And then I heard it, the knock on the door. I felt my knees grow weak and I began to buckle. Sweat broke out on my forehead. I really wanted to die at that moment. There standing before my mother was a little girl in a lovely party dress, shiny shoes, carrying a beautiful package wrapped with my name on it. Other little girls were coming off the walk as well. In a daze, mother watched as they tramped into our living room, which was still in the process of being cleaned. 
She first looked at the furniture, which was out of place, and the mop bucket, which was sitting in the middle of the linoleum floor. Then she looked at me. Couldn't return her glance. I just stood there, looking down at the floor with sad eyes. She didn't say a word, but she quickly pushed the furniture back into place, removed the mop bucket. Then she went into the kitchen, made lemonade, got some cookies, and served the wide-eyed girls. She explained to them that they could stay and play for a while, but they were to take their gifts home because it was not my birthday. As soon as they had left, I was taken to the basement and given a swift reminder with daddy's belt that the party plans had not been such a good idea. Mother went back upstairs. I remained in the basement crying. The spanking hurt, but the tears were from another place, something much deeper and hidden that I could not understand. Why had I done such a stupid thing? Why was I always bad? Why did I always embarrass mother and make her angry with me? I hadn't wanted things to turn out this way. Everything just seemed to take on a life of its own. I slipped out of the basement and up the stairs to my bedroom without anyone noticing, quietly pulled my door shut and laid down on the bed and cried. More than anything in the world at that moment in my life, I wanted someone to come and tell me that everything was gonna be okay. They didn't. I waited, it was time for daddy to come home and all I could think was, he is gonna be so disappointed with me. He, I am probably gonna get another spanking. I, I was just absolutely, as much as an eight-year-old can be, I was in such grief over what I had done. He called my name softly from the bottom of the stairs. I still remember how he looked as I left my room and headed down the stairs to meet him, tall and handsome, still dressed in his uniform. His face was stern, but there was a softness to it, something that couldn't be hidden by such a serious moment. I stood in front of him and waited. He took my hand and led me through the living room, through the dining room, and into the kitchen. We sat down on an old, he sat down on an old wooden chair next to the icebox, now filled with the leftover lemonade. I stood in front of him, tears flowing down my face. He looked at me solemnly for a moment. Then he reached out and scooped me into his lap. As he held me close and rocked me in his arms, a dam burst somewhere deep within me, and tears flooded my eyes like rain on a summer day. He drew me close and whispered into my ear, let's sing a song. You can sing harmony. And that was, that was it. Not a word was said about my unbirthday party. Words didn't need to be spoken. He knew my heart was broken by my poor decisions. In that moment, he caught a glimpse of my loneliness in that new place where I didn't belong my fear and pain and shame. Instead of talking, he gently stroked my hair as I sang and sang and sang. I will always love my daddy for that moment. I will never, ever forget it. As I think back to the, that memory even now, I am overwhelmed at the beautiful picture it paints of our Heavenly Father. When we least deserve it, when we, or when we least expect it, when we have blown it beyond belief, he is there.
to take us into his arms and comfort us. When our heart is broken by our own sin, he calls us to sing. He calls us to be comforted. He calls us to be loved in the midst of our sinfulness. And he calls us to do it to him, to do it with him. Each one of us have dark things from when we were growing up or maybe even not so far in the past where we ask ourselves the same questions. Why do I do the things I do? Why do I say the things I do? Do I not understand? I know that this is not really who I am. And the whole point of this today is be willing to be open with one another and with God. Be willing to walk out of the darkness into the light so that true fellowship can happen. Do you know that unless it's in the light, unless it is truly you relating with other people, it is not a true relationship. It is not a true fellowship. It is something that is other. And God wants us today, if there is going to be unity in our families, if there's going to be unity in our churches, if there's going to be unity any place, it's going to come by real human beings being real and knowing that there are times when you're, when you're going to be met with criticism. There are times when people are not going to understand. But there are going to be times when they do. And we must risk doing that if we truly want to be able to live in the fullness of God. Because he truly wants to sing over you. Because he loves you. And we're going to have uh, Michael come. And I want you just to want to pray a little prayer here. And I want you just to let the Holy Spirit come and show to you and reveal to you if there are places that you have closed in your heart that God wants to sing this over you, his love, his joy. Father, I pray you come now by the power of your spirit. And Lord, no matter where we are in our walk, some of us have walked a long time, and some of us are just beginning our journey. But Lord, you're there with us all along the way to show us those places where you have made us gloriously beautiful like you. And it's so hidden because we... We stay in the darkness to protect ourselves. So come, Lord, as he sings and minister to the hearts and open us up to receive the beauty that you have made us. Alrighty, we're going to move right on to the next, uh, next little topic that we have here, which is called uh, which moves right into the fact that there really is a war being waged for your freedom to be who you are. There, there, it is a battle. There, it, it is not unusual or it's not uh, strange 
that it's so hard to do this because there really is a war to keep you living in the darkness, even though this is the big thing here. God has already set you free. God has already forgiven you for these things. God has already said you are a new creation. God has already done it. But I think, and I speak from years of experience, that we will fight this battle until we see Jesus face to face. Because I don't think the enemy of our soul is ever going to let, us up, uh, let up on us. Uh, I think the battle can become more difficult for him as we begin to learn who we are. And as we begin to stand in that, as we begin to move in that, uh, but the battle basically is for our mind, our thoughts. That's where every battle takes place. The sin in your life and the things that you do, nothing happens in a vacuum without first starting in your mind. It's where every sin takes root and grows. But here's the good news. It is also where every victory is won. If we only believe and stand in the freedom that is already ours. All of the battles of our mind are intended to lead us into sin, to defeat us in order to render us powerless, and then to leave us there in that wilderness to die. Joseph told his brothers in Genesis 50:20, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I am telling you, when these things happen in your life, God always has another plan. One that is for good and not for evil. Even when sinful things happen, even when things that, that should not be are, God is bigger than that. There is nothing so bad that God is not greater and he will redeem all things. If we only let him. We are so powerful, we don't realize how powerful we are. We have to let him. I will give you some examples of how the enemy's work is used by God, okay? The battle for our mind is with Satan, who sends many thoughts to destroy us and keep us from fulfilling our destiny. But God will teach you to discern where those thoughts are coming from. Is that thought scriptural? Does it line up with the word of God? And is that thought from your true heart? Is it really what you want? If it doesn't line up with scripture, and if it isn't from your true self, it's not yours. You don't need to own it. Just because a thought goes through your head does not mean that you are a bad person because you thought that, because that thought may have absolutely been planted there by the enemy of your soul. But if you look at it and you see that it's something you're struggling with, something that you're holding on to, God will use that to reveal the sin that is holding you back. But only so he can forgive you and set you free. So either way, you win. You look at these thoughts and if they are not scriptural, if they don't line up with, with who you are and what you want in your life, you don't need to receive them. But if it's a conviction and God shows you something, it's only to set you free. It's only so he can take it away. Amen. He wants to take it away. The battle is generational. 
It is the sins of the fathers past, from child to child, from generation to generation. It is familial, and it feels very comfortable to us. And we didn't know that God cancels the sin of the, uh, of the past on the cross. You were made new and set free. Where the curse was once like a virus that killed, the blood of Christ now eradicates that virus and brings the blessing that gives eternal life. I don't know how many times uh, as, my, as I've prayed for my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, I've almost done a war dance stomping my foot saying the curse has stopped here. The curse stops here. And the blessing of God is to go forward into these generations. Now, I know the kids have their own life to live and they have to make up their own mind. But as far as I'm concerned, because Christ has told me I have the ability to break that curse, I break that curse in Jesus' name. It's a matter of prayer and standing on what God has done. His blood has overcome the curse. Thoughts are sent to press you down and to depress you and cause you to feel hopeless. And God will simply use them to humble you and test you in order to reveal the things that are there that are causing you to feel this way. That, again, is only so he can forgive you, only so he can set you free, bring you into the light. He has made a way through all of this, the guilt and the failure, because Christ has paid for it on the cross. He will send thoughts of failure and, and guilt and worthlessness. Anybody ever wrestle with those things? I mean, we, we all do. And God reminds us of his restorative grace. He has restored us. You've been set free. You're no longer guilty. And you know something of real truth? You never were worthless. While you were still a sinner, you even weren't worthless then because Christ came to die for you. That is a tremendous price that's been paid for each one of us. That God does not have worthless stuff. We are precious to God. Thoughts are sent to question the goodness of God. They will actually say to you, has God really said that? And I'll tell you what, God proves himself faithful time and time again. When you stand against the enemy of your soul and say, yes, he did. God said it and I believe it. And that's it. I intend to walk in it. Thoughts are sent to separate you from God and others. But we really need to remember that Jesus bore the separation from the Heavenly Father on the cross that we might have reconciliation. He has torn down every wall between us and the Father. And in that, there do not need to be walls between us. We are the ones that build the walls to protect ourselves. Many of the thoughts and temptations come from outside of you, yet they feel like they are you. And this is really a big one. I've done a lot of counseling through the years, and some, a lot of people will call, and they will really feel like they're just terrible because they're having these temptations and they're having these thoughts. And you know what? You can't stop 
those thoughts from coming. Thoughts come. They just come. You can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you sure can resist the thought and temptation and stop him from building a nest in your hair. You don't have to give him a home, in other words. These temptations, you know, we are all tempted. Satan is going to come. He's going to tempt us in every way possible that he thinks he can. But we do not need to buy into that. It's like, no, no, no way. I'm, I'm not taking that. That's not mine. That's not what God said. That's not what I want. I do not have to take that. Now, all of these things that I've mentioned are the power and draw of the world, and they work on the vulnerable and weak places and wounded places in our flesh that open the door to the work of the devil in our lives. The battle is fought in our minds is truly with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, we are not of this world anymore, folks. We live in this world, and we have to manage in this world. We have to live in this world. But we are citizens of another kingdom. That's really difficult in this day that we live in, to remember that, that the society we live in and, and the pollution and the stuff around us, we are not of that kingdom, and we don't need to have it dictate how we live our lives. We pass through this world, and it is tempting. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, which is exactly what I'm talking about. Being renewed by the uh, transformation of your, uh, transformed by the renewing of your mind. We come into this world because we live our life in Jesus. Who, we overcome this world because we live in Jesus. That's how we overcome. We have no power to overcome on our own. But it is no longer I who lives, but who lives in me? Christ lives in me. Christ lives in you. And Christ has overcome the world. So when we feel pulled down by the world, and when we feel like the world is just whooping in on us, we need to stand up and say, no, it is no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. And Christ has overcome the world. I need to remember that. Here again, it's taking these thoughts captive to where you live in the truth of what God has done. The flesh, we must all overcome the flesh, and we must crucify the flesh as we cast self off of the throne of life. Our will and our choices. We must decrease. He must increase. It'd be nice if we could just be delivered from everything, wouldn't it? Yeah. All the things. It'd be nice if we could say a few words, sprinkle a little holy water, whatever, and then all be done. But the truth of the matter is, we have, we have flesh that needs to come into submission to the will of God in us. And it's not an easy battle, but it's a battle that can be won. Yeah. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. We crucify the flesh and bring it to death in identification with Jesus. We are all called to attend the funeral of our own independence. 
We need to bury that. And particularly as we become part of a body, as we become part of fellowships and churches, we need to understand that our independence has, we, it cannot, we have no place there. The devil, he comes to destroy, he lies, he cheats, he steals. He brings death and separation from our fellow man and God, and we are simply to cast him out of our life. You know, judgment has come upon the world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. We cast out Satan by the authority and power of God through the work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. And I'll tell you what, that is, when you really understand that, that is the easiest part that we do. Because he trembles at the name of Jesus. And he knows that when I am fully convinced that he has no place and no power, and I tell him in a word, he must be gone. And we as Christians, I think if we could grab hold of that, we would, we would live as different people. Because literally, he trembles at the name of Jesus. What begins as thoughts and temptations in our mind can become sin if we let it. And that sin can become a stronghold. If that stronghold is not broken, we become captive to it. Oppressed and finally possessed by the very thing that we have given thought to in just a thought in our mind. The end result is personal defeat in our, in our walk. As we walk through this life, we are tempted to sin. We do have conflicts with people in our life. But I promise you, God, is, God will bring change to transform the way you think and act. And it's from every spiritual blessing that he has for us in the heavenlies, as Ephesians says. He's given us everything that we need to do this, whether it's the world, whether it's the flesh, whether it's the devil. But I'm telling you, I want you to get the point. This is all in your mind. And it's without a word being spoken from the outside. This is your personal thing. It's the voice that says you're worthless. It's the voice that says you are a failure again. It's the voice that says don't trust that person. It's, it's the voices that come into your mind, the thoughts that come into your mind that God has given us power over. And once Satan realizes that you know the truth, believe me, it, it, the walk becomes easier. But you're going to have to convince him. You're going to have to have knockdown drag outs with him. <laughs> you are going to have to convince him. No, this is not the way it is. You know, part of our problem is we don't want to let go. We don't want to forgive and we don't want to give up our rights. You know, it feels pretty good sometimes to say in things that hurt people and hurt ourselves. This is our battle. But when we see sin, when we confess sin, we are forgiven and we are cleansed. It is that simple. Our healing does not depend on anything or anyone else in our life except ourselves. When others have wounded us, when others have hurt us, it is usually not those wounds that keep us captive. It is our sinful response to the wounds we have been inflicted on us. It's how we respond. Uh, we realize that we have to take care of our own sinful responses. We can be healed. You know, we can't change what people have done to us. We can't change the things that have hurt us, the places where 
people have been abused and where there have been horrendous things happen. We cannot change that. But what hope we have in leading people through the fact that they can be set free of it by responding the way God says, by forgiving those who have hurt you. Just as Jesus said, forgive them, Father, they know not what they're doing. And when we, as people, take responsibility for our responses to those wounds, it's a glorious thing. I want to share, again, just a little bit of a part of my story. Uh, I was married 27 years and had five children. And uh, my husband walked out, left me. Uh, was really rough time for me. I uh, it was a beautiful spring day, and I was driving on Goldman Road in Missouri, and I had the stereo rocking to an old imperial song called "Praise the Lord." Love that song. I can still remember the words of it. For the chains that seem to bind you serve only to remind you they drop powerless behind you when you praise Him. As I drove, I was singing my heart out to the words that had become my theme song. This was probably about maybe two or three years after my divorce. Uh, went out of nowhere, literally nowhere. I was pulled into another place, one I didn't want to be. There before my eyes, I saw my husband with his new wife. They were laughing and happy, and everything seemed to just be beautiful around them. There was a family doing all the wonderful things a husband and wife do, uh, Everything was perfect, except now there was another woman who had taken my place, and here I was in a mobile home in Missouri by myself trying to raise a 12-year-old child. My thoughts raced back almost 30 years, back to the beginning of our marriage, back to when we had come together as husband and wife and all the intimacy that is there, and now someone else was sharing all those things that had once been ours. Horror and rage boiled up inside of me. In a split second before all rational thought was gone, I re remembered that he was no longer my husband. He had remarried only a week after our divorce was final. That other woman had replaced me. I pulled to the side of the road, bewildered and panting. Where in the world did those thoughts come from? Remember what I said about thoughts? Where in the world did they come from? What brought such awful thoughts to my mind? I felt as though I had had a gigantic bucket of mud poured all over me. Jealousy, envy, anger, and hatred filled every crevice of my mind at that moment. How do you stop thoughts you can't control? How do you stop memories from flooding back into your mind? Sometimes they seem to swoop in and out of your consciousness like birds in some Alfred Hitchcock movie. But you duck and you can't avoid them. And I could not avoid this. On that day on Goldman Road, that place became a place of war for me. I fought it against the enemy of my soul, the one who wanted to conquer me and possess all of God's children. It was a war fought both inside of my mind, it was in here, and it was for my mind. Satan wanted it. Resentment means to refeel. That's the literal definition. And when we feel things over and over again, we get stuck like a broken record and we can't set ourselves free. Even before the incident on Goldman Road, I had fought similar battles over my thoughts in the preceding months. No matter what I did, they continued to break back into my mind and I would pull things out. 
didn't matter if they were good memories or bad memories because they all led me to bitterness and, and, and resentment. Each time these in, uh, images resurfaced, resentment welled up in my heart and plunged me into thoughts and emotions I couldn't control. Thoughts of my ex-husband and his new wife filled me with resentment. Thoughts of him in intimate moments with someone else just drove me over the edge. Back to wanting all sorts of bad things to happen with them. You know, I really didn't know there was murder in my heart. But God showed me there was. Still, part of me knew that these were only the thoughts of my mind. They were not the desires of my heart. Okay, remember I said that? There will be thoughts that will come through your mind, but... This was not the desire of my heart. I had forgiven Carl and his new wife. I needed to learn to stand in that now, stand firm in the choice and celebrate the victory and freedom. And so in that singular moment on Goldman Road, I began to fight back. And this is what I want you guys to do. Oh, no, you don't, I said out loud. Get out of my mind. You do not belong here anymore. I have forgiven, I have been forgiven, I have been cleansed, now leave in Jesus' name. At that moment, I decided to build a monument, a way to remember that fight. Satan, do you see that ditch over there behind that deadly curve? I can still see it, folks, in my mind. I plant a cross so deeply in the ground that it cannot be moved. Take your ungodly thoughts and memories. I send you along with them back to that cross. I tell you to stay there. Don't come back. Because every time you do, I will point you to this place where I have built a monument to the working of God in my life. I will remind you that you are, I, my mind is no longer your playground. You can't play with me anymore. I'm putting my foot down. No. Every time you come, I'm going to tell you you're defeated. You know that and I know that. Monuments serve many purposes, but often they help us remember they bring us back to mind the truth that we have learned and the things that we have overcome in our life. We build monuments all of our life, whether we know it or not. We think back to things that happened, and, and that's where they are. I built a monument on Goldman Road that day. It's one that I returned to many times over the next few months. But gradually, gradually, the enemy lost his hold over that particular section of my mind. Even today, I still remember that little cross when life gets hard and memories resurface and I'm pulled back into the past. I won't go there. I go to that little curve in the middle of that road, to that cross that was planted that day, and I remind him, no longer, no, not going to happen. Years later, I encountered another assault on my mind not about my ex-husband this time but about a co-worker remember intimacy remember how you see things you examine and you get to know things well this was about a co-worker this time in Illinois I was ironing my little house had a circular pattern as I began to realize what was happening you know the thoughts going through my mind well if he'd only done this or if I had done that you know the thoughts that go through your mind when you're Arguing with somebody that isn't even there. And I began to realize what was happening. I slammed my iron down. I began to do battle with the enemy of my soul again as I marched round and round in circles all around my little house, stomping my foot, pointing to that cross once again. And I regained my mind. 
all of a sudden I was able to step back and say, no, no. Satan is not going to take me to that place again where there is enmity and strife and brokenness in these relationships. I am not going to let him do it. You see, Eve listened to the voice that spoke to her. He spoke, she listened. I'm not sure that was even really her true heart to disobey, but she bought the lie. And here we are today. So the next time evil thoughts slither through your mind, and that's what they do, Stomp your foot, say no, and let the enemy know that Jesus has redeemed you and that nothing can take that away. Then build a monument in that place and go back to it and go back to it and go back to it until one day you'll look at it with great affection because it has become a place of victory for you that no one can take away. So I know that there are thoughts that many of you have wrestled with through your life and maybe even right now you're wrestling with thoughts that are not the best. They're not good for you, they're not good for others. So we're going to take some time now and we're going to think about what lie have you been told that today God is bringing to mind that you need to not accept anymore. You don't need to accept it anymore. You need to say, no, this does not define who I am. Christ defines who I am. And be able to walk away from here today with some of this that keeps us, it really keeps us from entering into that place of intimacy. Can you see that? These thoughts that go through our mind, these things that, uh, you're, the fears that, that build up and we're afraid of one another. And if we can take authority over the thoughts of our mind, then we are able to be more transparent with one another. We're able to walk in a greater place where power and unity can come to our lives. So let's just take a time of prayer now.